This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Jenna Siri, a bookseller and the associate producer of Poured Over, and today I am joined by Colin Walsh. You may not know his name yet, but you're definitely going to know it soon because his debut novel, Kala, is incredible. So, Colin, thank you so much for being here with us today. No, thanks a million for having me on. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of the of the show. So uh, if I start to levitate at any point during <laughs> the discussion, it's just because I'm happy to be here. So ignore my legs as they kick past the screen. You know, it's it's all completely normal. So yeah. Exactly. We're very excited to have you here as well, because this novel is truly something special. It is a thriller. It has all the beauty and craft of literary fiction. You will not be able to stop turning pages, but at the same time, you'll want to slow down because you don't want to miss any second of this beautiful writing. So I think this book is going to blow people away. But that being said, this is a bit of a thriller. It has Tana French moments meet Emma Klein moments meet sort of this dark teenage drama. I don't want to spoil anything because there are so many good twists and turns, but do you want to do a little plot synopsis for us to sort of set up the book? Yeah, Carlo follows a, a group of friends who we, yeah, we follow these friends as teenagers and as adults. Um, so as teenagers, we're with them really over the course of like the summer of their lives. You know, they're passing through all these adolescent thresholds, like the first love, the first kiss, the first time getting drunk. Uh, so all that kind of feverish, giddy hormonal magic. And at the center of this group of friends is Kala. She's uh, 15. She's She's the leader of the group. She's kind of their emotional core, their heartbeat, and the glue that's really keeping this whole group together. Um, but the thing is, up beneath every kind of smiling surface of their west coast of Ireland tourist town, there's this uh, simmering darkness that's constantly threatening to swallow the characters. And as that fateful summer goes on, they're getting closer and closer to the darkness. And by the end of that summer, uh, Cala goes missing. And 15 years later, three of the surviving members of that original group of teenagers are thrown back together when human remains are found in the woods and the past and the present begin to uh, yeah, dramatically and, and violently collide. So throughout the novel, you're following the characters. The, the past and the present are intertwined. You're following them as adults and as teenagers. So. And there's so much more like that just scratches the surface. Every time I think about this book, Every time I talk about it, there's like more pieces that I always want to tell people, but I can't because I was like, wait, you just need to like experience that for yourself or or come up to that realization about some of these characters that really creates this expansive world. This There's a lot in this book. I, I've been so curious to know how you sort of started on this story. So this is your first novel. Um, how yeah. did you sort of decide this is going to be the one to write and this is going to be the one you want to put out in the world? Whenever you're deciding on a project, if it's a short story or an essay or whatever, there's always this the thing that makes you kind of gravitate towards an idea is that you just feel this kind of throb or this pulse that's there within it. But you don't really know exactly what it is until you're kind of until you begin to work on it. And I had, you know, I had these kind of images in my head that ended up kind of being sort of guiding lights for the book. But it was only when I really began to to write out things like scenes just with these characters that I just felt there's more and more and more to this. Uh, you know, initially there was, you know, there was a short story and it was like, no, this is bigger than a short story. And but what, you know, what's happening with that person over there? So I would write a bit on that. And then I began to just see that 
It kept expanding, but not just expanding. It kept kind of going deeper. The more layers that there were, the more I knew that like this was this was just a world that I wanted to be in um, all the time. You know, um, it was something that I just became really obsessed with the characters and the the, the town uh, that they live in. There wasn't a moment where I consciously was like, of all the ideas I have, that is the one that I will go for. It was really that that the book was my whole horizon, if you know what I mean. Sometimes the book, it just comes out when you need to write something, you need to write something. And yeah. With these characters, I can imagine that once you sort of start looking through those eyes and sort of getting to know that those characters as people how do you stop writing? I mean, you've created some really intriguing characters that are have a lot of depth and a lot of warmth and they feel very real. So I can imagine that it was very easy to sort of live in that world. So this book is told uh, through the perspectives of multiple characters. Uh, each chapter sort of bounces back and forth between some of our core group of characters was there one that sort of came to you first a first voice that stuck out the most that sort of let you in or did they all sort of percolate at the same time i think that helen was actually the first the first voice that kind of uh was there so there, there are three there are three narrators there's helen joe and mush and helen was the one who came first but it's quite yeah, it was interesting because, you know, you were saying just there about getting to know characters and things like that. And with Helen, for example, she she was quite vivid to me quite quickly. She came she came very early. I knew that Helen had this sort of um, vulnerability to her. Her heart is almost like this ferocious tremor or trembling that's within within her. Um, and I knew that that was there and I knew the reasons that that was there. Um but she constantly surprised me with just how abrasive she could be in protecting that space within her or hiding it from other people and hiding it also from herself, uh, particularly as an adult. You know, she's <laughs> she's almost suffocating in emotional armor by that point, um, by the time we, we find her as an adult. So Helen was the one who was there first, but she did surprise me um, the minute that, you know, I began to write her at any length, you know, um, the way that she would almost deflect you, you know, uh, I, like I felt that as the writer of, you know, you could feel that there was this constant tension within her that she was just kind of like a pillar of fire that she was carrying inside her. And then she had to keep everything super controlled and tight in order mm -hmm. to not get burned by the intensity of her own feeling, you know. And it's very interesting the way that you write these different narrations. We have two, Helen and Mush, and they're written in first person, while the Joe mm. section is written in the second person. And that mm. is such an interesting, I mean, I there are so few books, I think, that utilize that style, that second person voice at all. And then to combine it with these other pieces really lets you into the character's world in such a different way. You get to know the characters so much more intimately. But at the same time, because you have these conflicting voices, sometimes you aren't sure whose story you're really getting the most truth from. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that was that was something that was really important to me um, as an overall structural thing, because I guess I was thinking of, you know, there's this famous essay that Gay Talese wrote about Frank Sinatra in the 60s called Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. And uh, it was basically the, the thing was that he was trying to get an interview with Sinatra and Sinatra's entourage kept on rebuffing him and saying, no, Mr. Sinatra has a cold. 
and he would talk to his, you know, his Sinatra's bodyguard. He would talk to the person who looked after Sinatra's toupee. He would talk to fans at the hotel, all this sort of thing. And gradually he realized that all the different versions of Sinatra that he was getting from all these different people, that this kind of collage of voices was giving him a much more interesting portrait of Sinatra than any direct one-on-one interview would. And uh, that became the substance of the piece. And that really was an influence on Kala because what I wanted was for the reader to be uh, very involved in creating uh, their own idea of who these characters were by seeing the the irreconcilabilities or the, the fissures of difference between how each of them would represent certain things or how each of them would perceive certain things. Like Helen will see Joe acting a certain way and think this thing about Joe. But as a reader, you're aware that there's probably something else going on inside Joe at that moment in time. And then, you know, you know, mush and you, you're constantly triangulating your perspective between the different characters. And that was a way of kind of pulling the reader in as well, because you're you're creating this sort of space for the reader to enter the book and actually become a participant in every interaction in terms of decoding what it actually means. So that was really important to me just as a as a structural way of really inviting the reader in you know it shows how much that you really truly understand those characters because you are writing from such a close place within them you know if you if you look at something you know third person you create some distance sort of between what the what the narration or what the author or voice might be saying about these characters but you are constantly in the minds of these people and creating the structure from the inside out so it allows such a more intimate portrayal and I think works so well on a thriller mystery basis because we're kept guessing just as much as they are. You don't have any information that they don't know in those moments. For sure. Yeah, that was like a really that was a really important thing to me. And that was something that, you know, a lot of stories that I really like that have this sense of tension, that the tension does come from that thing of you can't actually see beyond the parameters of what the a first person narrator can see. So you're you're constantly aware that there is probably stuff going on at the edge of the frame that the narrator just isn't privy to. And obviously, as a as a writer, your task your task is to be layering that stuff in for the for the kind of very perceptive uh, reader or whatever you know. But um, but at the end of the day, you you can get a lot of tension just from the fact that you you know that the that the the character doesn't know what the character doesn't know if you know what I mean right um so that yeah that's that was very important to me was that there was no sort of sense of an omniscient narrator who's kind of uh you know let's cut away to here where you can see what the character doesn't know it had to be very grounded in their subjectivity all the time all the time I think especially when it comes to Joe because he in many ways is sort of floundering and lost in a huge sense for so much of this book he's really grappling with a lot of things and we are invited to go along right with it but because we're in that sort of different perspective with him for me at least right away he was maybe the hardest to get within and to sort of go along with because the other two have sort of a warmer sensibility right up front you get to know them a little bit more but as the book progresses, it really sort of opens up and you're able to put all those pieces together and start to really understand the characters in a in a bigger way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, 
with Joe's voice being in the second person, you know, there is this sort of um, almost an alienation uh, that comes with that just because uh, it is just a jarring kind of uh, thing to even even as a reader, it's just a jarring thing to read. But, you know, when I first started writing Joe in the second person, it was immediately, you know, on a gut level, it was immediately clear that like, this is it, like this is <laughs> I haven't. This is Joe, you know, you know, I have a lot of post facto reasoning for why that very intuitive gut decision worked. And I think most most writers would say the same, like the, the most important decisions you make while writing are decisions that you you either make them completely on your gut or you make them without even realizing you've made them. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I can see now that, you know, there, there are multiple reasons why the second person was an important way for me, even as the writer, to get to get closer to Joe's sense of himself, because Joe's relationship to himself is as an object. He doesn't really conceive or experience himself as uh, a coherent subject. You know, he is someone who is, he's constantly triangulating his idea of who he is through whoever it is that he's interacting with. My girlfriend is a therapist and she read the book and afterwards she said like that he was an almost classic case of what, what you would call a in psychoanalytic terms, they call it like a hysterical personality structure, by which what that means in psychoanalysis basically is that you don't have a coherent sense of yourself. You're constantly reaching out and flailing towards the world, towards the world for other people to tell you who you are. Um, but there's no stability to be found in any definition that anyone gives you, because the minute someone says you are this, it's like, but am I? Why am I that? What makes me that? Have I earned the right to be that? Am I that? What do you think I am? And Joe is really caught in that. It's a, it's a totally unstable position to be in. Um, and the ironic thing, of course, is that to any external eye, he looks like he's the king of the world, you know. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the reason that he's in this totally, yeah, unstable psychological position is because that is the entire way that he's been conditioned since he was a kid is to conceive of himself as a kind of master of the universe. But, you know, like, I think on on some level... If you're going to be quite ungenerous with him, which I think is quite easy to do because, you know, there there is a there is a darkness or a callousness that kind of comes with his self-involvement. Um, if you were to be ungenerous with that, you would just kind of dismiss him as, oh, you know, this guy is just narcissistic, da 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 da. But you know, I do have a real compassion for him because even though within the symbolic order of the society that he's in, he is like a king. To be a king is still to be completely caught in the structure of your society and having to fulfill a role. And the role is not who you are. You know, you, he's he's so committed to the role that the person he is beneath that role is floundering like all the time. And as you said, you know, floundering is exactly the word, uh, you know, it's a great word to use to describe his his general mode throughout the book. <laughs> And like with any of the characters, the journey that we sort of go on with them, the understanding of what they've been through and sort of as those layers are peeled back, it allows for so much more compassion and so much more understanding for even the characters like Joe, where at first glance you might think, oh, he's got it all figured out and he's fine and he's doing well. And then as things sort of move forward, you go, oh, okay, so here's all the reasons why all those things are completely not true. And so much of that is with the react- the interactions that these characters have, not only just with their own group, but with this sort of wide cast of supporting characters that you've created that are 
in many ways, these very interesting caricatures of people on the fringes of this missing person's case. There's everyone's family. Kala's grandmother is such a like intriguing and striking image through this entire book. There's so much that sort of weaves in and out. How did it feel to sort of create this big net of people? Because they all are sort of necessary in order to tell this story. Yeah, how did it feel? It, it often it felt like I had about 80 beehives in my skull or something. It was really yeah. like it was really a lot of plates to kind of be spitting all the time, um, you know, in the early stages, at least, because it was only during the copywriting stage of the of the book when someone sent like, you know, the copywriter, uh, uh, the copyright editor sent like a, a cast of characters as part of their notes. So it was a cast of all of the characters and the thing. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I was just I was just reading it and I was like, well, why why did I do this to myself? It's a long <laughs> list. Yeah, you know, um, and I mean it's not like it's not one of these, you know, it's not it's not an insanely large cast of characters. Like I'm not, you know, it's not like I'm not George R. R. Martin or anything like that, you know, but at the same time it is very expansive and the the way that I conceived of the characters, not just the main characters, but this larger cast, these people are not uh, kind of, um, they're not self-contained, distinct individuals that move kind of in hermetically sealed from one another. Their entire way of being is always conditioned by their interactions with one another. You know, who they are as individuals is always being conditioned by that which is beyond their individuality. So whether that's like their relationship to Kala or to one another or to their past or to their town or to their family or whatever, they're constantly in this kind of flux. Um, so, you you know, a lot of the time you're seeing characters, you might think of them as one way, but then if you see them in another context, there's this other dimension that comes out with them. Even the, the cruelest kind of characters, I wanted there to be this kind of grain of dimensionality there, you know, that that you could see that no one is reducible from the plurality of what it is to be a person no one is reducible to just this one facet so it was very important to me that uh that i had this uh you know that i that i honored all of these characters in their own way but um but it was definitely a headache sometimes <laughs> i'm not gonna lie <laughs> there were certainly there's a lot of interaction in this book and you certainly do have some cruel characters and i won't get too much into that because i think it sort of does lend itself towards giving things away but there are definitely some people in this book that you will not like. Um, yeah. But like you said, everyone feels dimensional. There, are, there aren't any characters that feel flat or that they're just on the page to serve that page's purpose and will never sort of revisit them again or understand how they fit in this like tapestry of characters amongst this town. And really, for me, the, one of the biggest characters in this book is actually the setting. Um, because mm -hmm. I think you can't, there's no way to sort of pick all these people up and put them, take them out of this small town, put them somewhere else and get that same story. It's so tied to place. Yeah. So the, the, the novel, it's set in a town called Kinloch, which is a, it's a fictional tourist town on the West coast of Ireland. It was interesting to me because I was saying earlier about the way that sometimes the most important decisions you make when writing aren't even decisions that you realize you've made. It's not like Kinloch was uh, an object that I needed to create within the horizon of the novel. Kinloch was the horizon. Everything that came out while I was writing the book 
it was arising out of this town but the town was the t it was like the town was already there just waiting uh, for me to write it you know i know that on some level i was probably influenced by things like you know yeah like Derry in Stephen King's books, you know, the, this creation of a place where you give yourself the imaginative, maybe even cinematic license to kind of do things in a place because you're not tied to the specifics of an actual place out, out there in the world. But I also remember seeing there was a painting that I saw many years ago by Sheila, the Austrian painter, and it, the painting is supposed to be of Vienna. But if you know Vienna, like the painting is all, it's all wrong in the sense that, you know, that building is not next to that building. They're in totally different parts of town. And the, that, that, that place is way smaller than there, but in the picture, it's way larger and stuff like that. And then what you realize is that this was the Vienna of his heart. This was all of the, all of the places that resonated most to him. He had kind of made this uh, affective map of Vienna in this painting. And I think in many ways, Kinloch was sort of like that for me. It was, you know, it was a place that was a kind of um, a collage of a lot of locations, real or imagined, that I've had in my own life, uh, places that I had certain emotional resonances to. And they kind of came together to to be Kinloch. But again, like I said, I, I'm reasoning this in a post-facto way. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's there, and now I have to kind of, invent a kind of reason for it you right. know now when everyone is asking you how did you come up with it you're like now i have to come up with a reason of how i came up yeah with yeah, it. yeah 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 i like i there's a there's a an irish writer named mike mccormick and i remember seeing him being interviewed once and the writer asked him a question about you know you know so when you were writing that book and he said i have no memory of writing that book i was writing it for five years and i have no memory of writing it and i could i could respect his honesty in that answer but you could also see the color just drain out of the face of the interviewer. Right, it's like, like, oh, oh no. God, how am I going to get through the next hour? <laughs> right. if this is the kind right. of answer I'm going to get. You sure you don't want to make some stuff up? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is your chance. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm trying that at least, you know. <laughs> yes, no, it's, it's, it's going well. It's making sense. Okay. But okay. that's, I mean, I think that that is always the interest, right, for everyone else. It's like, how did you come up with this book? And I feel like it's so much pressure to say, like, oh, here are all the, the things that you've done. And, you know, that expectation of like, I've listened to a million other writers talk about their process and then have to put your own process out there, I imagine is a little daunting at this point. It is daunting. And in, 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 it's daunting just because I don't feel like I'm particularly articulate about it for myself. But I know that as a as someone who, you know, I, I never formally studied creative writing. So for me, a lot of my education in terms of technique and process and stuff was from listening to uh, writers talk about their process. So listening to a lot of podcasts um, and kind of learning from, you know, if I liked a particular novel, I would read every interview I could get my hands on with the writer of that novel about that novel. I would listen to every interview that they had or look up any old video on YouTube or any current video on YouTube where they talk about it to just pick up on on technique and then of course they would they would re recommend writers that they were influenced by and then I would do the same with them and that was sort of how I that's how I learned certain formal skills you know was just listening to people talk about their crafts so I think it has a real value I just don't uh, necessarily feel like I'm equipped to do it yet <laughs> you know well it all it takes is practice and you never know I feel like there's so much out there that 
you never know when that one thing is going to click with someone else or when that one thing is going to click with you because writing is it's such a personal and subjective thing. I mean, it's going to be different for everyone. So you never know who someone's going to listen to this and be like, exactly. That makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, fingers crossed, you know. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> One of my favorite sort of things about this book is the way that you use time. It is such a, a book that is sort of rooted and unrooted in time because we're sort of bouncing back and forth constantly between this incredible summer that these kids had in, in their youth and their teenage years. And then we're sort of confronted with their present and the way that these years have gone by and we have to slowly pick up these details in between, especially with some of the other characters that we don't see quite right away, um, Aiden and Aoife, we have to sort of put these pieces together. How did you keep all of these sort of timelines straight and the different ways that the different characters perceive these timelines? Do you do any sort of like formal drafting or like outlining or is it all just buzzing in there all the time? It was definitely like always buzzing in there, but I did have to, you know, I did have to do all those classic kind of, you know, things that you see in a, in a bad movie where someone's got the pieces of paper on the floor and they're kind of moving them around. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, I'm sure at some point, like the wall in the room where I was writing probably looked like, you know, the layer of some paranoid conspiracy theorist maniac with all these kind of arrows drawn between things and stuff. But, you know, I, I did have to, I did have to think a lot about that because I want the experience for the reader of the book, you know, the, the the transitions from past to present or from one character's perspective to another. I wanted that to be incredibly fluent and just fluid so that, that, that the reader would just be kind of being taken along by this. But the actual architecture of it was so kind of very time consuming and uh, intricate because because it's a mystery so you have to really control the information and you know the, the way that you're layering out bits of information is crucial to the entire structure of the book but then you have to be true to the emotions of the characters what they would be remembering at certain points you have to be true to what they would be perceiving so you know what helen wouldn't notice that or you know yeah but mush wouldn't be thinking about that because his attention will be on this I think it actually was George R. R. Martin who once described, you know, he said that there was there were gardener writers and there were architect writers. And a gardener writer was someone who would kind of, you know, I think he was talking more about people that were doing very character led work where they would have an idea and then they would allow it to kind of grow in the direction that it needed to grow. And then you had the architects who would have a kind of they would they would orchestrate this huge structure and then they would implement it in the, in the text. And in a weird way, because of the nature of the book, because it is very character led, but it is a mystery, it is literary, but it is a thriller, I had to kind of be doing both simultaneously. And that required just a lot of back and forth. You know, I would get I would get to a certain point with the structural process and then I would try to implement that and the characters would just resist and be like, no, I'm not doing that. You know, this isn't this isn't right. And that would mean I'd have to go back again. And it was this constant thing of, you know, I would draw a map and then I'd realize the territory was different and I'd kind of go around the territory and then I'd redraw the map and then, you know, just going back and forth, back and forth. There were many times where I felt like, I don't know, you know, I don't know if I can do it, you know, like I always believed in the characters and everything like that, but it was more this thing of, I don't, I don't know if I can pull this off, you know? Um, so that was, I was constantly like this thing of holding your nerve, you know, for, for, for years, you know? <laughs> 
<laughs> Don't worry, you pulled it off. It seems like the book fought you a little bit to get there, but you pulled it off. It's it's yeah. good. It's done. <laughs> unless I mean, unless you still like wake up in cold sweats, being like, "Wait, which detail was that? Who said?" And then you know, it all comes back to you. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying my best not to not to indulge in that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Maybe the next one will come a little easier after you did the fight on this. That's what my my agent did say to me. She was like, the structure, like the, the number of points of view, the size of the cast, the double timeline. She said, like, you know, it's a first novel. Could you not have kind of yeah. could you not have just done something a bit more straightforward? It's what you said earlier that sometimes, you know, it's not like you're choosing the project. You know, the project kind of comes and then you, you have to you have to do it, you know? If you do the most challenging thing first, then everything that comes after will seem better. That's a very optimistic. <laughs> yeah, and I am going to definitely try to internalize that because that's that's a that's that's a good approach. That's, that's <laughs> what I'm going to do. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm taking that. I'm taking that one with me. <laughs> Something I think that uh, is so well done and so like perfectly crafted in this book is some of the teenage nostalgia feelings that not only just the moments when you're expressing them as teenagers, but the sort of 30 year old looking back at their teenage self being like, what was I doing back then? Um, and sort of managing things that were really, really important back then that somehow seem less important or the things that were really important that sort of got minimized and sort of moved past really quickly and mm. balancing all those like teenage feelings which are somehow so big at all times yeah yeah i mean that's the thing is that you know on some level because the the emotional voltage of those years is so is so intense and so overwhelming you know for for almost everyone i would say that you would speak to you know they, they would be even people who hated their teenage years would never deny the intensity of those years you know and um, there there's just there's such potency to it and in in many ways the characters as adults they're trapped in the emotional amber of those years you know there are things that happened in those teenage years that have in some way created the the emotional contours of the rest of their lives and you can see that you know that emerges as the book goes on you begin to see how in many ways the wounds that were inflicted during that time when they were teenagers together and all of these you know dramatic events happened in some way those wounds have been the the emotional landscape within which they've been navigating the rest of their lives so you know I, I think a lot of people probably would have similar stories from their own lives. I mean, that's one of the things that's been quite interesting to me is, uh, you know, the, the book the book isn't out yet, but there are people who have read it because, you know, it was sent to publishers and, you know, things like that. And, you know, I've heard from I've heard from people like in their 20s and I've heard from people in their 60s about, you know, oh, this this took me back. You know, it was like, oh, I remember that. Or, you know, and it's that thing that on some level, you're you're always carrying that with you. You know, I mean, part of you is always 15 years old kind of thing, you know, for better and for worse, you know, but like that's, you know, that's not something to be to be mourned or to be rejected. It's just something that, you know, like in this book, it's something to that you have to come to terms with in some way, you know. I was definitely taken back with the sort of survival skills, the ferocity, the intensity of teenage girls, and the obliviousness of teenage boys. There's so many, <laughs> so many moments 
where we're watching these girls just struggle to live their lives and these boys do not know what's going on half the time yeah I, like you know uh as a as a former teenage boy you know i <laughs> i can definitely <laughs> claim to my fair share of uh obliviousness but you know it was important to me that i kind of honored the dynamics that do happen within teenage girl friendships you know because there is a distinction there you know at least in my own experience there was there certainly was in the in, the, in my friend group that's for sure but clearly you took the time to get to know your characters i mean the way you've been talking about them in this interview and the way that i think so many of us feel about characters that we read and while we're reading them is that they are people to us in those moments we interact with them like they're real people and that mm. allows those moments that maybe you haven't experienced that but because you've taken the time to understand these characters you're able to write from that perspective and it translates for the reader because i i mean i haven't lived the experience of joe or mush as well but i really felt connected in those moments to those characters well that's nice. that's really that means a lot to me to hear that thank you that freedom of like biking and walking around your town and sort of traversing it in that way i think i like that there's i mean they don't spend that much time in cars in this book it feels like they're really spending a lot of time walking and biking and sort of navigating in that way and it really they're very grounded and in interacting with the character of this town yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah they're definitely you know on, on some level they're they're in this you know obliviousness of teenage self-involvement and things like that but on another level they're so grounded in their world you know physically even you know these kind of visceral experiences are going through whether it's even just innocent things like swimming in a lake and things like that <laughs> you know they are very much in their bodies whereas you see certainly in their adult selves there's a there's a kind of disconnection or something you know that um at least when we when we encounter them at the beginning of the book you know they are like like a lot of us as adults you know they're they're kind of um a bit uprooted from 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 whatever vital soil it was that was nourishing them back then you know when you're reading and, and out in your own life, are you looking for those thriller elements that come into this book? Are you reading for voice in the literary fiction space? And it's very interesting to sort of mesh those two things together in the way that you do in this book to take some of these really classic mystery and thriller elements and then at the same time have so much care for sentences and language and this structural piece. So I wonder when you're reading in your own life outside of just writing what you look for the most yeah i mean i'd, I'd be primarily looking at you know at, at voice um yeah the language the voice that's kind of the when i when i'm reading that's really what i'm most interested in because i i often i find that if you if you just have this, a strong voice often that is as compelling as any kind of propulsive plot um you know there is I used to think of like there's a there's a novel the novel's called My Phantoms. Her name's Gwendolyn Riley, <laughs> um, but the the book is about the relationship between a woman and her mother. Um, and there's a set like if someone said to you, "What's the story of the book?" Just be like, well, there isn't a story in terms of like this happens and this happens and this happens. But it is such a page turner because the voice is so vivid and the relationship is drawn so uh in, in such richness and with such intensity that you're just it's like you're it's like the book just grabs you by the scruff of the neck and just pulls you through itself you know 
Um, and I, I often think that if you get those elements, like if the if the voice and the character depth and the dynamics between characters are well drawn enough, that already generates its own momentum. So I, I, I think that in terms of like the thriller dimension or the mystery dimension, I think that was more coming from my love of, you know, yeah, like certain TV shows or or films, even, you know, uh, like classic noir, but, or, but also, you know, just you know like like most people you know a lot of a lot of hbo things like that you know like mm-hmm. a lot of people uh today um but you know what what i love about let's say for example something like mayor of east town that that was broadcast after i i had already finished the book basically um what i found very compelling about that was the fact that you had a mystery but actually the the propulsion of the story was more about the dynamics between and within the characters as opposed to, you know, a cliffhanger uh, every episode and things like that. It was much more about, I care about these people. I care about the emotional stakes about what's going on between these people. And that's what's actually pulling me through the story. It's not a cheap kind of gimmick of just, you know, right. he opened the door and couldn't believe what he saw. Yes. Next episode, you know, kind of. <laughs> right. Know. No, there's definitely a lot of depth. I was thinking of sort of like BBC dramas like The Fall, with um, mm. Gillian Anderson and Jamie Dornan, sort of yeah. that like more expansive, you are seeing so much more of the character than maybe even yeah. the crime. And it really pulls you in that way. Yeah. And I think uh, then, you know, that, that's the thing as well, is that if you do have that level of investment in the depth and the vulnerabilities of the characters, that makes, you know, the the events, the the, the darker events, like the moments of violence or the, the actual crimes themselves, it makes them resonate in, in in just a much more powerful way because you really you really feel how these things ripple on and on and on and on you know it, within the individuals but also between them and out through the generations and out through the society etc you get a lot more from having that kind of investment in the depth of the characters than you would if it was just bam 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 like constant action but no sense of stake or consequences um at play and it really pulls everything together into this really cohesive piece. I mean, by the time I got to the end, I mean, I read this the first time a few months ago and then picked it back up right before this. And by the time you get to the end, you are both like, I can't wait for this to be done because I just need to know what (laughs) happens. But at the same time, I find myself wondering, like, I hope they're all okay. Like, I hope everyone is okay at the end because you do Mm -hmm. come to care for all the characters so much. That you just hope that whatever goes on after that last page, that they come to some sort of peace. Ah, yeah, no, that's that's great. I mean, I I couldn't ask for a better better response to the book uh, to the end of the book than that. You know, that's that's wonderful to hear. Thank you. And I know we talked about this a little bit before after you um, made your most ambitious foray into novel writing with this. But are do you have anything coming up? Are you working on the next thing yet? Uh, yeah, yeah, I am. So Kala has it has been optioned for uh, for uh, adaptation for TV. So I'm I'm working with that. Um, but there is a novel. There's a another novel um, that I'm working on uh, at the moment. I have a, a musician friend, and she once told me that she she never shares work in progress because it scratches the part of her brain, like the reward part of her brain, sure. and tricks her into thinking that she's got something done. <laughs> <laughs> 
I actually had that approach when I wrote Kala as well. Um, there was a certain point after maybe after the first 40 pages or so where I stopped showing any of it to to anyone um, until I finished the book. Um, and that was really important just as a way of keeping, yeah, it's like a pressure cooker. If you keep the lid on, then it, 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 it generates enough tension within you that you have to keep going and going. So that's my very roundabout way of, uh, of giving you nothing. That's fine. <laughs> I mean... I don't need to know what it is. I'm just excited that there is going to be another thing. I'll, I'll read whatever it is after this, so you don't have to worry about that. But it's very exciting to hear all those different updates. But I can't wait for people to get their hands on this book. I, it's going to be such a fun, wild ride for everyone to go on with a lot of heart and a lot of character that is just going to take them to the next level. So. Colin, thank you so much for joining us today thank and being you. with us here on Poured Over. And for all of our listeners, pick up Kala as soon as you can. You won't regret it. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks, <laughs> Jen. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of fantastic books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Kala. I'm Mark. I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by my book buddy, Madison. Hello, Madison. Hi. I'm going to go ahead and kick things off. I am very excited for Colin Walsh's new book. Uh, it seems very, like, literary thriller, right up a lot of people's alley, perfect for the season, and I could not even start thinking about a recommendation without partnering with my reigning queen of thrillers and that is jen at the beaver creek store in ohio she and i have talked about thrillers many times she's recommended so many books to me and she is very stoked to read this book so i gave her full reign to choose a title and she came through as expected with a wonderful title called when the stars go dark by ms paula mclean so mclean is usually known for her uh, historical fiction, The Paris Wife being kind of right up there at the top for her. This one is a newer release, and it is a slow burn literary thriller. I think the way that she tackles language is really fitting for a suspense novel. So the way that she kind of braids past trauma with present suspense is really on full blast here in the best way. We follow a character named Anna. She's a missing persons detective. Uh, who has just recently gone through a really terrible, terrible loss. She is essentially returning to her hometown to convalesce, uh, to heal uh, from something really tragic. And while she's there, a teenager girl goes missing. And this spurs on a lot of memories from Anna's childhood and a particular case that feels eerily familiar from when she was growing up. So the way that the past and the present start to envelop Anna really gives her the realization that she is meant to solve this case. She is the person who has chosen to do this. McLean gives us a slow burn that I think also allows for a lot of fast page turning. She packs a lot of emotional heft into this. She also allows the reader to get more pieces of Anna's past uncovered as the book goes on, right up until the very last page. So the connection from her current tragedy mixed with the case that she is working on mixed with the case that sort of haunted her childhood without her even realizing it 
are all coming to a head. Each of the details of these three separate timelines are building up to something fantastic. I'm glad she recommended this one. It was sort of needling in the back of my head, and she just reaffirmed, if you want to go with literary thriller, then Paula McLean's When the Stars Go Dark is a great place to go. Madison, what do you have for us? Yes, I feel like my uh, pick is also in that similar vein of like going back to kind of like your childhood and your roots in a way. And I chose a book that kind of has done some genre hopping. Some people, I think it was originally horror. Then people are like, no, it's thriller. Some people have put it in fiction. Um, But I chose Devil House by John Darnell. And I chose this one because I liked just kind of the pull of it. It takes place uh, with Gage is our main character. He is a true crime writer. He had one huge success, one huge story that got like a movie adaptation and all these things and like a few minor successes. But now he's kind of like stuck. Uh, So he's kind of like, how can I get this unstuck? And to do this, he is offered to spend a few nights in a house in a small town in California called the Devil House. It is a notorious house where a pair of murders occurred in the 1980s, kind of during a satanic panic. And he is here to write about the crime. But what really kind of pulls it in is that him as a true crime writer, when he writes his books, it's not really just like victims or he brings kind of like a a life back to them and shows that they aren't just victims. They are people with backstories and feelings and thoughts. But as the story progresses, you kind of see him reach back into his own past because this town is also the town where his childhood friend lived. So you also get that connection of how this place is starting to mean something to him. And I feel like if you're a fan of true crime, this is another book that's really, really meant for you. It explores not only the writer, but also the crimes itself. So it kind of pulls that fiction along with the true crime in and kind of just makes a very intriguing tale, which also kind of helps you see why it can fit into so many types of genres, because it's kind of a mixed bowl. It has a little bit of that scary. It has a little bit of that thrill. And then at its core, it also has that fiction that like pulls you back in to the main character and it all is interwoven and connected him go on his own journey as well as he's as he remembers this childhood friend which is why i chose devil house by john darnell i love that book i love that book i love john darnell he's so one of the coolest humans in general please if you get a chance listen to the poured over episode for Devil House when it first was released in hardcover. Nice choice. But that is all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in to Poured Over. And please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Madison. You can follow my home store at BN Events Grove. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.